Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, a part of the amazing FBA family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, co-hosted by myself, Michael Vizi, and Jason Miles, top 1% Shopify store owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving e-commerce business, look for The E-Commerce Leader on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers. Today, I've got the pleasure of talking to one of the sharpest minds in the business, CJ Rosenbaum. He's based in New York City, New York City lawyer. So as you'd expect, super sharp guy, very, very expert on suspensions and other legal matters that affect Amazon sellers. We've already talked about suspensions. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do. You need to protect what you already have, guys. Today, we're going to talk about brand development and protection and using litigation as a tool. This sounds like heavy legal stuff. <laughs> Welcome back, first of all, CJ. Thank you very much for having me on. This topic is for those six, seven, and eight-figure sellers who own their own brands or for people who want to get there. This is taking what you have built, protecting it, watching it like a hawk, and using all the weapons at your disposal to protect your sales from hijackers and counterfeiters. Protecting what we've built and hijackers and counterfeiters. So those word hijacker comes around a heck of a lot amongst angry sounding, normally angry or frustrated sounding Amazon sellers when they meet uh, on or offline. So can you define the word hijacker for us first in a reasonably clean sort of way that would make sense to a lawyer rather than an angry Amazon seller? Yes. A hijacker is just another person or another company, another seller who is selling your product without your permission. And the laws in the United States are different than in the UK. But that's how we refer to a hijacker. It's someone who's on your listing selling your product without your permission. Tell me about that. I mean, how, to what extent is that actually something under our control on Amazon.com? Uh, because I've heard from other people's views over the years, some quite intelligent sellers, I thought, that once it's on Amazon's platform, if somebody wants to resell your product, that's okay or something like that. I mean, what's the real situation legally in the US? Okay, generally, it is okay. We have a law in the United States called the First Sale Doctrine. And what that says is that anybody and everybody can buy anything that they want and then resell it. As long as the consumer, when he or she receives the product, there's nothing materially different, and that's a legal term, materially different than if they bought it from the brand or an authorized seller versus from an unauthorized seller. So the whole thing in the United States is to add something to your product that takes it outside of the first sale doctrine, that makes it unusual, so that when the consumer receives it from an unauthorized seller, they are receiving something that is materially different. So that's what we do. We build things into your products that make your sales materially different than an unauthorized seller can deliver. And we can usually do it through a warranty. We can usually do it through some kind of post-sale benefit that another seller cannot deliver. So it takes some creativity. But again, this is what we focus on. So it's not rocket science, but m most firms don't know anything about doing this. And even large sellers are unaware of the legal issues behind it that we can deploy to stop other people and companies from stealing your sales, even when they're selling genuine products. Amazing. So really, you've clarified something that really, I, I think that <laughs> I wish I'd 
phoned you about six years ago and had that discussion because the first sale doctrine is very clear that actually in essence in the broader sense you can have things resold and thus all of us ranting about hijackers from a legal point of view they're not hijackers they're just resellers and let's face it a lot of people did retail or online arbitrage before they started selling on amazon and same kind of deal there i guess but so the solution is to make sure that we we put something else with it so warranty post-sale benefit What's a, can you get examples of other things that we can use to get outside of this first sale doctrine so that we thus can presumably ask Amazon to suspend the listing? Or what do they do at that point if we, if we can legitimately claim this? So I'll use the example of Wustoff Cutlery. It's a German company that makes some very, very high-end knives. And what their warranty says is that if the, if the knife has a problem, you could send it back to Wustoff who will then send that knife back to the factory that made it in Germany to be retooled in the same factory where it was made. Third-party sellers don't have that access to the factory. So therefore, when you buy one of the knives from Wustoff, you are getting a benefit that nobody else can deliver. That is a material difference. That gives Wustoff the ability to remove hijackers very, very easily. So that is a really good example. And what Wustoff does and what we do for many of our clients is we give our clients, our brands, the choice to either have the product retooled at the same factory where it was made or replace it. So what does that do? One, it stops other people and companies from being able to sell the product because they can't possibly have it fixed at the same factory. It also gives the brand the ability to do what is more cost efficient, which is almost always to simply replace it. So the brand is getting the benefit of both ends. They can stop the hijackers and still simply replace the products. And you'd be surprised how many brands have failed to add something to their warranty that they may not ever even use that in terms of fixing products, but they can use to stop other sellers. Most warranties simply provide a money back guarantee. And since money is homogenous, and also Amazon gives a money-back guarantee anyway into the A to Z claims, those warranties are not worth the paper they're written on. You have to add something else that the hijackers cannot deliver. Then you can legitimately ask them to stop selling, which we always recommend. And the ones that refuse to stop selling, you know, then go nuclear with the complaint. I, we, never, we never go straight to a complaint, by the way. We are not in the business of harming sellers needlessly. So we always try and get an amicable resolution first. But brands, private label brands, small brands, you need to know you have these tools at your disposal. We can add something to just about any product that will stop hijackers from selling it. Beautiful. And by the way, you make an extremely elegant point there. So you can offer to have the product retooled or replaced. And the fact that you're never going to retail it because it never makes cost effective sense to ship a product that costs you $5 all the way to China, get it remade and then back to the USA. Therefore, you're always going to replace it. And nevertheless, the fact you're offering it makes that material difference, right? If I've understood. It does. It does. And also, there are other things you can add to your products, post-sale benefits, that not only benefit your consumer, protect your sales, but also bring more customers to the table. If you're selling products and there's an update or there's a new accessory or it's become better or there's a new use for it that you've discovered, your warranty 
that if sellers register with you and they bought it from you and they register, they'll get these added benefits of product updates down the road. That's another benefit that you can deliver that also benefits your company because you're, you're building into your business the chance to resell or upsell to those same consumers. Very, very smart. A legal solution that is also uh, a nice marketing benefit. That's really super smart. So we've talked about how to protect yourself. So assuming that you've done this sort of stuff and there is somebody you think of as a hijacker, what's the thing to do? So you ask them directly to stop selling and then you go to a complaint. So talk me through how that works. Okay, first we make sure that we have a legitimate grounds to ask them to sell. A lot of products already give us the tools in their warranties or their post-sale benefits. If they don't, we add something to the warranty and it's a very easy, efficient thing to deploy. Then we send a cease and desist communication uh, to the hijacker explaining why their products are materially different and they should stop selling. And if they don't, we're going to be compelled to make a complaint. That will get rid of, in our experience, when we do it, 60 to 70% of your hijackers. Then for the remaining ones, we actually make a complaint on Amazon. Now, making a complaint on Amazon, you have to be very careful what you claim. If they're selling genuine products, you can't complain that it's counterfeit or you're opening yourself up to litigation. Okay, so you can't falsely accuse anybody of selling counterfeit. You have to make an accusation that fits like material difference outside the first sale doctrine doesn't have the same warranty or or same packaging there's a whole list of things that we can argue but you don't want to make a false complaint those complaints we know how to write from cross-examining the staff at amazon that reads these complaints so all of our experience helping sellers with plans of action ip issues taking amazon to arbitration all the information sort of consolidates in all the things that we do, including brand protection. Like we know not to use the word authorization in a complaint against a seller because Amazon disregards it. Even if you say they're unauthorized and selling counterfeit, Amazon staff in India disregards the entire complaint. So we know what to put in the complaints. And I think more importantly, we know what to leave out of the complaints that they're effective. Last but not least, there's also if you have counterfeit issues, real counterfeit issues, and you have your own factory coming out of wherever in the world, a lot of the factories are in China or any place else, and it's literally dozens of sellers and it's costing you, you know, $5,000 a month or more in sales, you can go to court here in the United States. You don't have to be a citizen here. You don't have to have a U.S. company. You can go to court and get a court order freezing the counterfeiters accounts and their money and their sales and their inventory and in one fell swoop get rid of 200 counterfeiters at a time but that's really only cost efficient if you're losing a lot of money and you have a lot of counterfeiters for those particular sellers those are the seven and the eight figure sellers going to court is a very good remedy and i don't rush anybody into court i spent 20 years doing nothing but spending my time in courthouses but for the right case and the right losses, court is very, very efficient because it's immediate. It's everybody. It's done in secret. And then all of a sudden you're getting all the sales and Amazon complies with all of these court orders. Good to know that Amazon complies with some other authority other than Jeff Bezos. <laughs> At least uh, that's good yeah. to know. So tell me the obvious question then for somebody based in London, England, I should say, rather than 
wherever else London is. First of all, you said you don't have to be in the USA to do this. So how would that work? So if I have a UK limited company and I own it, I'm the director and a shareholder in it, and I want to do this, what's the sort of basics of the next steps for that? Well, first, we want to make sure it's cost efficient and there's a good ROI on the expense. I am a firm believer that anything you do in business should be geared towards making a profit. And that includes hiring me and my team to write your plans of action, deal with your intellectual property issues, and go to court. So that's why you have to be losing, I would say, at least three dollars to $5,000 in profit per month in order for court to make sense at all, because court's going to cost you money as well. So if you're losing enough money and there's enough hijackers where this is the most cost efficient way of doing it, we would then file a lawsuit in secret. We usually go to the courthouse in Chicago. It's called the Northern District of Illinois. We can also go to the courthouse here in New York, but we try and go where the judges are friendly to these claims. We would file a lawsuit and we would immediately ask the judge assigned to that case to issue a temporary restraining order freezing all of the counterfeiters' accounts, inventory, and money on all the platforms here in the United States. Uh, Once we get that order, it's still done in secret. We send that order to Amazon and World Currencies and Payoneer and Payability and all the other platforms out there, freezing everything. And then those sellers start coming to us and saying, we didn't realize we were selling counterfeit products. Can we negotiate a deal? And you can get them to stop selling and start settling for the money that you've got frozen within Amazon's accounts. And that's where the profit comes in. It comes from recouping all your sales and getting the money that's frozen in the Amazon accounts and the other financial accounts. And that's where the profit comes in. Wow. I mean, it certainly does sound like it's a nuclear option, but it's still, you can see the power of how that works. And if you guys know the, the judges to go to, sounds a bit like a sort of John Grisham novel in reverse. It's not like so much the underdog attacking the, the big corporation is the medium-sized corporation attacking the many sort of attack dogs. Anyway, I'm stretching my metaphors, but yeah, interesting to hear. So obviously we've talked about litigation as a tool and somewhere down the line, you've talked about, you know, essentially a smart warranty or any other way of getting around the first sale doctrine, which is something I'm going to brand into my brain now. Wait a second. I got to tell you something. Yes. I love, I love that name, a smart warranty. So I will give you credit but I love that. It's fine. Term. It's not trademarked. So, you know, not in the US and not here. Although I used it first. <laughs> I don't know if that's a copyright issue. It's fine. So you can say that. Well, but... I think I am going to actually trademark it. I think I'm going to steal it. Okay. Well, trademark. buy me lunch next time we meet up. <laughs> so, joking aside, obviously, this, this sounds like, you know, this is difficult stuff. Now, you talked about brand development and protection. So, litigation is obviously, you know, the last resort. You've talked about the warranty, the smart warranty, TM. So, what are the other sort of ways that we can put a sort of ring of, of defense around our brands on our, in the Amazon space. Okay, let me start from the beginning all the way through litigation, which is the nuclear option. And again, it only fits if you're losing a lot of money and there's multiple sellers out there that it's more efficient to do it all at once in one building. First of all, if you have a trademark, you have to get on brand registry. If you don't have it yet, or you don't have your mark yet, use Amazon's IP for intellectual property, IP accelerator program. You use lawyers that are in bed with Amazon to apply for your trademark and you almost immediately get brand registry. Although now there's a trend for Amazon reaching out to you and offering you brand registry, even without getting into bed with their lawyers. 
So you get brand registry. Brand registry gives you a lot of tools in terms of controlling the listing. You're still subject to Amazon and Amazon vendors, but it gives you a lot of protection. The next step is monitoring your listings. We have our own in-house software that we use to monitor every listing for every brand we protect, but you have to automate that. Then it's a process of sending out cease and desist communications, identifying why your product is outside the first sale doctrine. The next step is complaints. The monitoring is constantly going on in the background because you're going to have people who agree not to sell who then come back on and sell and then you have to make a complaint against them. And that will protect 80, 90, 95% of your sales and protect your brand. Litigation is a nuclear option. It also leads me to another topic, which is geared more towards sellers who are selling other branded products and who might be victimized by false counterfeit complaints. And if any one of your listeners out there, viewers, runs a Google search on Rosenbaum Familaro and the Dallas Cowboys, which is the largest franchise in the largest sports league in the United States, the Dallas Cowboys made a false complaint that our client was selling counterfeit jerseys and apparel. And that opened them up to litigation. And I can't tell you the exact result of it, but I can tell you we and our client were extremely happy. So for brands, don't make false counterfeit complaints. And for sellers, if a brand has falsely accused you of selling counterfeit products, they have accused you of a crime and they have interfered with your contract with Amazon. And both of those things allow you to go after them on the offensive to threaten litigation or actually sue them. And it's very, very useful tools. So you know everything we do comes together and it melds into different methods to help sellers all over the world. And that's why we are the world's best. It's the litigation team who sits on the other side of this wall. It's the two plans of action teams that we have. It's our teams in China who are boots on the ground. In terms of your sourcing, we have staff in Iwu and in Shenzhen. It is our business law for sellers group. It is our arbitration and brand protection group. So all these things allow us to develop knowledge, information, and tools that other companies just don't have because they're not as broad as we are and they don't get to cross-examine Amazon's executives. The groups that I travel with, I, I actually interviewed about three dozen different members of Amazon staff in India. And as soon as this pandemic is over, I'm going back for more. So all these things come from all the different things that we do. And it's all focused on people and companies uh, making money on Amazon. Wow, very impressive sort of arsenal. It's almost like taking on the US Army or something. <laughs> you guys have got a sort of uh, a whole sets of divisions of people with different kind of specialist weapons, as it were, you know, to work on behalf of your clients, which is very reassuring if, if you're their client, I guess. I'd imagine the Dallas Cowboys, without saying anything actionable, are kind of regressing, <laughs> tangling with you guys by the sound of it, without knowing the results, of course. Okay, so what other things are we missing here? What else should I be asking you about protecting your brand or protecting your products from other sellers or from Amazon indeed? I think it's important whether you're large or small to get your infrastructure in place. There are some great software options out there to monitor your listings to see when there are hijackers or counterfeiters. Again, we have an in-house software that's remarkably well that we are constantly updating and making better. But even if you have one product and you have a brand, you just signed up for brand registry, get the infrastructure in place early. If you already have dozens or hundreds of listings, get your infrastructure in place or contact us. 
to help you get infrastructure in place because you, you want to have the infrastructure in place before you have a problem. It just makes the whole system easier. It makes it easier to use brand registries tools. So that'd be, that, that'd be my number one takeaway. Get your infrastructure in place as soon as possible. That does make sense. Now, I'm going to open a can of worms here, which is not a neat ending to a podcast, but I've got to ask about China, because obviously, if we're getting products made in China, many, many of us are doing that, despite the, you know, the trade wars or what have you. Can we do anything about it when our factories or if our factories start mass producing stuff that we have not just private labeled, but customized and they've, they've got our own molds or anything like that? I know it's a big topic, but let's sort of at least give me the basics. It's 100%. I mean, the same basic tools will protect you from your own factory, who is clearly making genuine products, as it's the same as yours, as well as other factories. You have to add something to the product that when the consumer receives it, they're getting something additional or something special from you that they're not going to get from another seller. Also, if you have your trademark, you can actually take steps and stop products from coming into the United States at the border. So also quality control is another mechanism. So, you know, China does get a lot of bad publicity for counterfeiting products and stealing intellectual property. But if you think about it, if you have 90% or 85% of the factories located in one country, you're going to get 85% of the genuine products as well as 85% of the counterfeiters. The Chinese business people that we have dealt with are absolutely remarkable business people. They are driven, they are astute, they are technologically advanced. And just like uh, business people in the UK, business people in the United States and Australia, most of them are entirely legitimate. So it's just the vast percentage of factories that are there that I think reflects the percentage of counterfeit products and, and intellectual property issues. It's nothing pro or against China. It's where the factories are located. And I think as other countries, if we can gear up our own manufacturing, it'll bring the jobs home, but it'll, it'll also have the counterfeits at home. It's just where the factories are located. So the same tools that protect you uh, against domestic hijackers will protect you against Chinese hijackers. That's excellent. Well, that was a two for one there, because not only is it you see above same same tools protect you, but you make an extremely good point that actually, if most of the world's manufacturing is done in China, then most of the fraudulent manufacturing is done there as well, which doesn't mean as a percentage they're any worse or better than UK, US. And yeah, that's a very good point. And actually, I guess more to the point, I wasn't so much suggesting that we have a sort of rampage against a particular country because not my deal, but it's more a question of, I guess, because it's so far away and in a foreign kind of legislative space what's the word a different law that it feels hard to get a, a handle on it but i guess what you're saying is at some point it enters the united states or whichever country and at that point then you use the same tools right yes i'd also add one thing to it i can't tell you how many contracts i have seen between businesses in the uk and businesses in australia and businesses in the united states with their factories in china that says that if there's a dispute you're going to come to the court in the United States or the courts in the UK or the courts in Australia. How much do you think a factory owner in China cares about what a judge in New York has to say? Zero. I mean, absolutely zero. So I guess the last tip in, in, in closing this webinar would be that in your contracts with the factories in China, you need to make the jurisdiction in China 
particularly Beijing is the best, okay, because they're the most advanced in terms of enforcing contracts with businesses in other countries. But you got to put teeth to your contract and a threat that you actually can execute on. So stop making your contracts have dispute resolution outside of China. Put the dispute resolution in China because the Chinese companies want nothing to do with the government or the court system in China. They care about that. That frightens them. They're not scared of judges in New York or London or Melbourne. So that's another change I would do immediately. Stop putting in your contracts dispute resolution in your home country. Put your dispute resolution someplace that threatens those factories, which is in their home. Absolutely. Court. And it strikes me that pretty much all of that is overlooked. For example, UK-based Amazon sellers, if they're threatened by California or whatever, then that's going to threaten me less than it would you because they'd have to get an extradition order, which would be ugly. I'm unsure it could be done. I'm not saying it's a license to break the law. But the point is, yeah, I mean, where the legislation happens is very, very significant. So you raise... A very basic point. And I guess then that implies that we need to have somebody who can do contracts in China for us. Is that something you guys deal with? Because it sounds very complicated. We do. In China, there's a lot of IP agencies rather than lawyers. There are lawyers there as well. The goal of a contract is to set the stage if there's a dispute. And often if the stage is set, you'll never have to go to court, either in the US, Australia, UK, or even in China. But the fact that you have that weapon at your disposal will resolve the vast majority of disputes. So the answer is yes, we do have connections in China. If we need to refer people to IP agencies or lawyers in China, we have those relationships. But most important is to have that tool at your disposal so you can tell that fact. Listen, here's, look at paragraph six. If you, st if you continue to sell our products, we are going to sue you in Beijing utterly makes sense and in the end you just need to, it's very very simple i guess when you're trying to invoke an authority in a situation then you need to invoke an authority that has an authority over the person you're speaking to not over you because it wouldn't really matter i mean if the queen gets angry with me that's not going to affect you very much there in new york i guess <laughs> anyway so yeah very very good point listen we've we've covered a heck of a lot of ground here that's quite amazing breadth of stuff as you said it shows the breadth that you guys can can go to now anything from contracts in china to plans of action in america final thoughts on protection before we head off i got to tell you something one have your intellectual property rights set properly. Make sure you own them. You file for protection. You can file in the UK and then use what we call WIPO, World Intellectual Property Organization, to get protection in the United States. Get your infrastructure in place to monitor or use us to monitor your listings. Always, always, always give sellers the opportunity to amicably stop selling your products. It's efficient. It is cheap. And you avoid blowback to your brand because any seller can trash you. We know that. And also only make complaints when you're right and you can't resolve things amicably. So work courteously, professionally, and I think firmly. So that'd be my, my end tip is to handle things courteously because it's more efficient and uh, cheaper. Courtesy is more efficient and cheaper. What a marvelous ending. Thank you very much, CJ. Very, very grateful to have you back on the show. All right, great, Michael. Thank you very much. If you make between eight and 30,000 euros or dollars a month on Amazon, so about six to 22,000 pounds, this is worth a minute of your time. I've noticed a consistent problem for e-commerce sellers around this level of sales. They've got one, two, or even several products making decent sales. They've got market research and they have their sourcing in place. In short, they've done the basics of launching products and of their business. But too many are driving blind. 
Usually they don't know their numbers, whether they're financial or marketing. Often they are lurching from uncontrolled spikes in sales to going out of stock and nearly always they lack a clear roadmap for the next phase of growth. Their business is in short, unstable, probably not very profitable and certainly unsellable. Step forward, the 10K tune-up. The 10K tune-up is a process to hone sellers' businesses at this critical point in their growth. It will make your business more stable and more profitable. You will work together with me one-to-one -to, -one to help organize your finances and marketing data. We will get to you the best use of your accountant to keep on top of your numbers and of your freight forwarder to stay in stock and keep making money. Once that's stable, we will work together on a product roadmap to get to seven figures a year in profitable sales over the next one to three years. In short, we will help you turn your business into an asset that makes you money now and, which you can if you want, sell in future for a healthy six or even seven figure sum. To find out more about how that works, just go to www.amazingfba.com forward slash tuneup. That's amazingfba.com forward slash T-U-N-E-U-P. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the 10K Collective podcast, part of the family of Amazing FBA podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.